Break Fix Podcast is all about capturing the living history of people from all over the autosphere, from wrench turners and racers to artists, authors, designers, and everything in between. Our goal is to inspire a new generation of petrol heads that wonder, how did they get that job or become that person? The road to success is paved by all of us because everyone has a story. This episode of Break Fix has been brought to you in part by the ACO USA, where you can become part of the legend. Membership in the Automobile Club of the West, the founding and organizing body of the 24 Hours of Le Mans is open to all. The club hosts events in Le Mans and around the world, attracting fans who enjoy their shared passion for motoring and motor racing. Get ready for a heartwarming tale of courage, camaraderie, and the pursuit of racing glory as we transport you back to the late 1970s in France, where a talented team of privateers from Cuba and Puerto Rico came together as a Porsche 935 racing team, united by their passion for speed and an unbreakable bond forged on the racetrack. Joining us tonight is Ruben Sanchez, head of marketing and social media for the ACO USA, to tell us all about what it was like being in the pit box at a very young age at Le Mans, supporting his family's Porsche racing team, and how that changed his life forever. With that, let's welcome Ruben to Break Fix. Hey, thank you very much for that, Eric. And joining me as my co-host is our resident sports car and endurance guru from the golden age of sports car racing, Mike Carr. You make me sound old, but thank you very much. <laughs> let's transport our audience back in our best Estelle Getty way. So picture it, Cuba, the mid-1960s. Ruben, you're two years old. That's what set all of this in motion. Absolutely. Like my parents tell me, I was a Hellion since birth. I continue to be a Hellion. I was meant to drive. That's why I love racing my whole life. And I started technically, you could say at 14 months old, my grandfather was working on his car, which was an old Buick with column shift. And he left me in the car and went inside the house somehow. And I ended up yanking on the shift because I was sitting on the uh, seat. <laughs> And the car started going down the hill, comes out, the car is halfway down the hill. And they're like, where is he? He must be inside the car because that's where I, I was. I had shared a photo with you that I still keep because I just can't remember that day. But, you know, I didn't want to get out of the car. I was just holding onto the wheel, but I enjoyed it somehow. And from there on, you know, it's always been cars, planes, boats, go-karts, big Evil Knievel fan as a kid. So, you know, I made my own Evil Knievel attire with my grandmother, you know, until I jumped my dad's car in a ramp and that was it. <laughs> my 100cc <laughs> motorcycle away. Thank God I've never been really hurt. You know, I've been lucky in that aspect. Thank the Lord. You're from Cuba. Yes. How easy or difficult was it to move from country to country from Cuba? I'm under the impression that that was a relatively repressed regime, mm -hmm. you know, at the time that we're talking about. Castro came in in 1959. I didn't leave till 66 and a half, 67. We had relatives here that were had already left, like Diego Pablis. He left in early 60s, 50s, right around that time period. He raced there with uh, Juan Manuel when Manuel, uh, the re revolutionaries, came and got him at the uh, Cuban Grand Prix. <laughs> so around that time, they left. Some of my other family members le left and had started businesses here. You know, we didn't have the, the same economic situation as they did. So they sponsored us and we had to go to Spain for two years before we could come here. You had to go through a third world country. So, you know, we went to Madrid and lived there until 69. And so I I got here at around three and a half years old. 
because you couldn't come direct. There was no communication. So you had to be sponsored to another country. So that's how we pretty much all the Cubans that left in that era got here. You know, the Raul Sanchez, the Diegos, all these Mascanosas, all the people that, that you might know of. I had been under the impression that maybe you were coming and going from Cuba. But what you're no, saying no. is that you got out. Yeah, we never went back. Right. Okay. When you left, they took everything. Everything you had, you couldn't leave with nothing. No, any gold chain, nothing. They stripped you down to your clothes and that was it. So whatever you owned, like the Bacardi's lost their factories, they had to leave and go to Puerto Rico. All the Cuban cigar people that are in Miami, they left everything that they had. It was Everything was nationalized and you get out of here. The ones that had money, they kicked out, so they took their factory. The other people, they just keep repressing until today. People think things have changed here, but nothing's changed here. It's still the same way. We still have distant relatives there. We have other people here that go there. And 90 miles from Key West off our shores, you have such misery and socialism, dictators. It's a shame. So once you finally got out of diapers, there's a bunch of years between your first Lama and that incident there with your grandfather's Buick. So tell us how you ended up going to France and being on this team in the late 70s. Well, I have on both sides of my family, the racing family. On my mother's side, grandfather, my second cousin was Diego Fables. So he was an avid racer. He left Cuba in the late 50s, right around Castro, went to Ecuador, then later Venezuela, and then eventually settled in, in Puerto Rico in the 60s. The way I got to Le Monde was in 1976, my grandfather died in March. And Diego came back to the U.S. for his funeral and so forth. And, you know, when I was very distraught, I could put a Chevy 350 together by the time I was 10 years old with my grandfather. My dad can't turn the screw work to save his life still. So I picked up everything, either to God-given talent or because of my grandfather, you know, and I wrenched and built all my cars. So I was distraught. And then my dad and Diego got together at the funeral and said, we're going to Le Mans, so bring him with you. Come and be in the team. So that's how I got there. You know, I was already a, a Le Mans fanatic from watching McQueen's movie in 71 at, at six years old. So to me, it's, it was already the holy grail. And to actually be there... You couldn't have really appreciated that time, but you get older, you reflect back, you're like, wow, what an experience that was. You know, the garages are lousy. There was just little tiny little silos, you know, open, noisy, people in shorts, smoking and filling up the car. You know, I remember helping them with tires and moving stuff around. As I've gone back over the years, see the contrast. Wow, how racing is now compared to those days. It was very grassroots, it was good old boys having fun. Today, it's a whole different ballgame with the professionals. Nothing's left to chance. How did the team wind up there with the 935? Well, it was a 934 RSR. Okay. It was Brumos's car. He bought it from Brumos, from Peter Gregg. And it still had the same paint scheme, except you change the number uh, to 78. Red, white, and blue with the stripes. Yeah. It was a Brumo car. You know, and they yeah. didn't put Puerto Rico in the front. I remember that. And something I'll never forget that he had in the back. I don't know if he had it in Le Mans, but later on, you know that they used to make Made in Jacksonville for Brumos. Okay. He had a great sense of humor, Diego. He wrote, but enjoyed by Puerto Ricans. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, 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 I, always, I always used to love that. I go, pretty crazy guy. I mean, an incredible Volkswagen, probably the fastest Volkswagen bugging for a quarter mile in Puerto Rico. So that just fueled my Porsche, Volkswagen life, my whole life. But this takes a lot of juice to put a car in a plane or a boat or whatever and get it over to France. And how did that work? What were their background? I mean, is there enough racing in Puerto Rico that that could be their 
full-time thing or was this a gentleman's hobby, I suppose? Yeah, it was a gentleman's hobby, but there was a lot of money in Puerto Rico that helped him to do it. Le Mans, we went twice, 1976 and 80, but he did race like in Sebring from 74 to 80 something straight for like 10 years straight in Daytona. In fact, at one point, I think 77, he was second overall in Sebring, the 12-hour. But it was just amateur guys, really. It, this was not no factory works team by any sense of the imagination, but just passionate about it. And they really worked a lot of hours uh, to do, uh, you know, scrounge up money and whatever we could to get there, you know, buying old equipment, basically. Pretty incredible story. What did you do next? I would go to Le Mans pretty much every year with the family, with them or with other from my dad's uh, father's side, the Ralph Sanchez family side. I would go there. I mean, I was there um, in 79 when the Whittington's won. <laughs> that was a great time to be there as well. And in 80, we went back again. Diego went back. He crashed in the 15th hour, unfortunately. So the two times there, there wasn't bad. The first time there, I think we had an engine failure. You do what you can. You know, not a lot of spares, not a lot of qualifying engines, only like today. You know, we scrounged up and did everything we could, you know. And then after that, we kind of stayed more stateside because, you know, to go to France is uh, definitely a lot more expensive. But it was always a dream to do it. It's been my dream my whole life. It's just racing is so expensive now that, uh, you know, unless you find uh, somebody to, to finance that dream, it's uh, it's very difficult. Well, not only that, it's near impossible to just show up to Le Mans anymore and say, I'm going to compete. Correct. You have to go through all these other gates and all these other right. series and points and be nominated to be in one of the garages. I mean, it's way more complicated than it's ever been. When you hear the stories of when that was possible, it yeah. just blows your mind. Yeah. <laughs> you just showed up. You know, you could take your car. If you had to get there, you know, you, you made it there. I remember that was the NASCARs were there that year. That was in 76 was when the NASCARs were there. The, the big 427s were not that far away from our pit. And, you know, I could hear that, you know, every time it went down. It didn't last very long. But those vivid things. So when I went back now for the centenary, you know, the 56 garage brought that back to memory very vividly again. You know, those are the things that are seared in your brain. And when we look at it back, it's like, wow, back then, then we could possible i had so many friends that raced in gtu and, and gto and IMSA as well you know which you know after the mid 80s it just it got to a level that it was impossible for you know the homegrown guys to show up so funny it's almost on par with like going to an scca event it's like as long as you show up with a sack of cash to pay your registration fee you're in you can run at lamar you know see how lamar chooses you at the end of it right correct being there 11 years old and then again you know 15 16 years old the second lamans you went to in 80 you had to rub elbows with a whole bunch of people that now are considered Le Mans legends. And we'll talk more about Le Mans legends as we go along. But any folks that you met that now you realize that are of that stature much later? You know, there was Redman and there was Bell and Ix and so forth. And I knew them from Le Mans, the Le Mans movie, because they were in the movie. So I knew they were either actors or great race car drivers because they were for the movies. So those are the kind of ones I remembered at that period of time because I was, you know, very young. But from Le Mans, I remember them, the ones that are in the movie. You know, later on, going back, many years and different jobs and different opportunities I've run into them again over and over again and many many more and like I said you don't know at that moment because you're so young but when you get to reflect much older in your life you're like wow I I've really had some great times I had really great memories to reflect back on 
And you mentioned to me when we were touring the Le Mans Museum together that you had a encounter with Jackie X, the original Mr. Le Mans himself, many, many years later after your original encounter with him in the 70s. And what was that like? It wasn't in Le Mans. I went to Paul Ricard for the Formula One race. After the race, I was at the airport and Jackie was right in front of me with his wife. So we said, Jackie, you know, can I get a picture? Then we started talking. I said, you know, Jackie, you know, I, I was at Le Mans. You know, I first dived when I was in 1976 and then 77 when you won with the 936, I think it was, the open cockpit car. So we just started talking. So we actually flew back from, I was going from Paul Ricard, Marcel, I think it was, to Belgium because I was going to Belgium and, and he was going back home. So my wife and her got together in front of us and him and me and Jackie did the, uh, you know, two hour and a half flight together just talking back and forth he's such a approachable gentleman you know and very just grateful and a humble guy actually i've met others that are totally opposite of that but he is uh, very warm and open and in this whole time you've been still going to le mans many times over how many le mans races have you been to since your very first one 23 24 i'd have to count them when you look back over the last 40 years of le mans or more now almost 50 years some of your best memories the memories that have the greatest impact definitely in 76 and 80 because especially 80 because i was 15 years old i could definitely remember everything then i remember seeing paul newman and some of these guys that i could appreciate at that time so 1980 probably you know number one in my mind i was there i was in the pits i was behind the scenes i was helping checking tire pressures on car doing whatever that you know we had to do you know we didn't have 30 people we had maybe eight people total so we had to do whatever it took you know as far being a participant in a way that's probably the best memory you talk about 1980 that was alan cadenet racing there that year we just lost him correct i used to watch his series all the time on speed vision yeah with the ferraris and stuff yeah he was very eloquent in and what a gentleman yes absolutely there's so many memories following the Rothmans and the Porsches and I think 83 when, you know, a car was broken, I think with the door and in 85 again, Derek and Hurley and Al. Yeah, that, that was the Bell Holbert era. Yeah. Yeah. Then with the Silk Cats and with the Sauber, I remember going, went with the Mercedes flipping, Peugeot's win, Mazda's win, you know, and uh, Magnish just eating the wall right there on the Dunlop curve and I'm on the opposite side. That was terrifying. And that was right across Chappelle. Like where it went into where people were yeah yeah yeah, that car got destroyed you can see that the wheel the hubs and the whole axles flying off the tub incredible a carbon fiber tub is incredible you know in in the jackie stewart era back in that tin can with with two race fuel tags it was a different thing nobody would survive anything period so i mean i would go like every other year or every two years so i would start there and then continue on a vacation i plan everything around the mons it's been my holy grail i'd like to understand whether or not these were crew gigs or you're on vacation or it's just important that you be there important that i be there the only time that i've done some crewing was for synergy racing in grand america that i did a couple times with david murray and one of the doctors from team seattle it was in synergy and so forth but no the other time just because i love being around the smell of 112 octane and burning rubber and and just the noise we all share that yeah Yeah. it runs through the veins (laughs) so good so do you think if you hadn't gone to Lama, you would have still pursued motorsport? Yeah, I love things that move fast. 
So whether cars, planes, boats, it don't matter. I've, I've done it my whole life. I, you know, I, I've always somehow tried to get in. At one time in the 80s, I worked for a dealership that was here in Miami and the owners raced offshore boats. So I got myself in there. I, I was working at the dealership and doing mechanics and so forth. But then I would go at night to go work. And then it was a Ford dealership. So we were the only ones that had Ford engines. Everybody runs Chevy 454 and more cruisers. So we had Jack Roush engines. And I got to go and do a, several races. In fact, in 1987, we won the Peace Sportman class in uh, Key West, a world championship, you know, doing 112 miles an hour on the water. Uh, I've had great opportunities, you know, and, and been kind of lucky in some spots to get in some of these. So I'll get in anything you give me. Just if it moves, I love it. You know, it could be rally, could be, you know, drag car, jet car, Le Mans, uh, you know, I like moving fast. You've had a really interesting career as well, obviously focused around mechanics and cars and things like that. But there's a period in your story and I think it's fascinating. And I think Mike and I both want to dive into this a little bit deeper. You worked for Momo. So how did that come to be? Gian Piero Moretti of Milan. When you talk about Momo, it's Moretti and Monza. Yeah. Mo, Mo. Correct. Yeah. And it was a great guy. So generous. He was great. I have a friend who Eric knows who says that he loved the ladies and he was sponsored by Penthouse. Yeah. And he was from a rich Italian family and there had to have been a million stories there. Did you see any of that stuff? Well, by the time I saw him, he was married and his wife was at the races. So, you know, he came from a very affluent Italian family and he didn't go into the business. He loved racing and, and that's how he developed the wheel. And then Enzo said, okay, you're going to do all my race car wheels and also my street car wheels. And that's how Momo got launched. He convinced Enzo to let him do it his way. Right. Enzo liked wooden wheels and right. Momo said, we've got to cover them with leather. It's going to be a much better wheel. You know, you need that grip for a Formula One car or whatever in the case. So, And then the rest of the story from there, it took off. And then he really uh, expanded into other things, including, you know, in the 90s when, when I was with him doing the eyewear and all that. So it's definitely a playboy lifestyle. He didn't flaunt it very much, but yeah, I, you know, I, I saw a lot of stuff here and there, you know. <laughs> Not looking for gossip, yeah. <laughs> no, no, and I enjoyed that lifestyle too. I was, you know, I was single, so why not? <laughs> I actually worked before Momo. I ran a chain of tire stores. And when the Momo Idea wheel came out, which is this five-spoke wheel that you had little bracelets you put on it and changed the color, I sold more than anybody in my store, you know, because I love Momo to begin with, I, you know, even before the Idea wheel. So I got invited to the office for a VIP event. I met Moretti and we started talking. And since I spoke Spanish, you know, he says, you know, would you be interested in handling Latin America and the Caribbean? And I said, yeah. So I actually became director for Latin America and Caribbean. Since he knew I, nobody in the office really in Miami was a motorsport guy. I was the only guy who was always about racing. So I definitely built a bond with him. Every time we came, he would say, I'm going to Watkins Glen, fly up. And, you know, he would send me the tickets or a plane. So I, I did that. We enjoyed the 962 with Geb Hart for a couple of years. And then in 83, Nissan GTP that he ran with Kevin Doran as the, you know, the team. So some memorable moments like 93, I think Sebring was ran 
train that stopped the race for a while. And we came in second after the Van Gurney Eagle. And I remember John Paul pissing in his pants because he couldn't hold it anymore, <laughs> you know, sitting in the car in the rain. But it doesn't matter. Flush away with the rain. I mean, it was a lot of those stories that I go back and go, wow, it was good to be behind the scenes there. That's kind of why I started the evening with the legend because there's these stories that I heard and I want to try to get the legends while we still have them alive to get their story out as well. When we step a little deeper into the Momo story, and there's some pictures that go with this that are in the show notes along with the episode, you sort of circle back to where you were as a kid. You talked about Derek Bell and Jackie X. You find yourself, as you mentioned, working with John Paul Jr., but also with Derek Bell at Momo. What was that like to now be there shoulder to shoulder with one of your heroes? Well, that was incredible. I spoke to him and I and about my time there, but we kind of bonded on that. And I met him plenty of times throughout the years. And he lives down here in Vero. And he couldn't believe, he, you know, yeah, I know plenty of people there. So he doesn't remember me. I said, but I remember you because of Lamont, you know, you were like one of the heroes in the movie. And I definitely remember you. <laughs> Even you, you weren't a main character, but I know you were there just like Redman and so forth. So as I moved older, you know, in the 90s, talked about that and then, you know, his experiences with the 917. Much later on, got to drive a 917 because I have a friend up in that Long Island that had a Martini 917. So I drove it 2015 or so at Palm Beach International because Brian Redman has a Targa 66 event. So I got to drive Greg's car. He's a collector. He has a, quite a bit of cars, a, a 312 PB Ferrari Can-Am car that I've driven in Road America as well. You know, I uh, I got to feel that movie by being in the real car, finally. You know, miracle, you know, because I had a girlfriend that lived in Palm Beach and this gentleman lived in Palm Beach and the girlfriend later became my wife. I don't know if the karma brings you in circle back to that. How else would I get into a 917 and get to do a couple laps with it? So let's hear about that. What's it like? <laughs> so let's go there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I didn't push it very much. Even then, you could see it. It wanders a lot. Those Avon tires for driving a modern car with slicks, you know, it, it, it's, it's a different ballgame, low profile. <laughs> it definitely needs brakes compared to modern cars. But that howl, when you just gun it a little and you hear that from that vertical fan, it just raises the hair in your back and it makes your butt kind of pucker. Really, you feel it move. How would it have been to have been in that car over a 24-hour race? Just to imagine doing Molson with no hairpins at 252 as Derek would tell me that they were doing back in the day. There's a story from Norbert Zinger that told me once that you know, he told him, Derek, you, you did this, you know, and he goes, that translates 252 miles an hour. And he said, well, what about if I did 100 RPMs more past red line? Well, Derek, you would blow up. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I heard that from Norbert with talking to Derek many years ago and I, I was like wow what a what a concept you know yeah I would imagine that's what the red line's there for you know limiters are only good on the way up when you money shift they don't work <laughs> yeah so you drove one of the GTP Ferraris as well you also mentioned the 962 how do they all compare they're all very different the Ferrari the 312PB just trying to work the gate it looks like a little toy it's just a little shifter with a ball and you have to be so precise just to get it in there acceleration is yes definitely accelerates incredibly that car had a, a next sneaky loud a formula one engine in it it's a different v12 compared to the 917 but it was an incredible event you know the tires are very tiny in the front <laughs> it's a whole different serious understeer yeah, yeah absolutely yeah it's, it's terrifying <laughs> well, since it's a gentleman's race, since vintage event, you don't really push it. Nowhere, anywhere, the limit. I respect these cars because I can't afford them. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't definitely want to put that, that kind of 
a vehicle on, on a wall. I think that car, my friend had sold me now, it's about 7 million bucks. You know, back then, I don't think it was that much a couple of years ago, but uh, these cars have gone price points that are stratospheric right now. Well, the 962 was a ground effects car, so that must have handled yeah. completely yeah. different. Again, I didn't drive it very fast. He let me do a, a lap or two at Sebring for testing once. You know how Sebring is with the da, da, da. So if I drove it 50, 60%, maybe that, so you don't really get to push it in the corner, keep that ground effect. I can't say I could feel it because I, I respected it. I, it was, if that, something happened to that car, you know. You're I, not going to mess it up, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Priority one. If I could drive it in anger, I would love to, but I know I, you know, it's not my machine. I have to, you know, keep the throttle up. Well, they say though, if you're not at a certain speed with a ground effects car from that period, any of them, they don't stick. They're very unruly. Yeah. I mean, a straight line and, you know, in Sebring, when you're doing the straight, it's not a problem, but when you start going like turn one or whatever, they, it's really high speed. But again, you know, you got to say, okay, it's not my car. Plus, if something happened, already would fire me. So, <laughs> so I'm like, okay, you know, I appreciate you at least letting me do it, but I know how to respect the courtesy of what he, he allowed me to do. So at this time at Momo in the early 90s, they were campaigning the Ferrari 333 SP. Was there anything else going on or projects you guys were working on, stuff that was kind of exciting? That started after I left. He was trying to get Ferrari to get into prototypes for years. It never happened. And then finally, he convinced Pietro to do a car. And then so Pietro contacted with Delara and Nicoletto. They worked on that car to get that prototype for the regulations. So that started, I think, in 94. And he worked it till about 98. I think he won Daytona around 98 or so. You know, I wasn't working at Mo, but I would go to the races and see them and, and be in there, even though I was in, no longer at Mo. I was actually working at Penske at the time. But with Penske, I never met Penske at, at the track or did anything with him. But yeah, I mean, I love that car. B12, you know, it's a whole different ball game from uh, the 312. <laughs> you know, the B12, but, but now you're talking ground effect. It's kind of a, the evolution because really that 312 really became the 333. If you look at them, they're so very similar in every way, you know, open cockpit just the evolution definitely you know a decade later and as we know it wasn't a Le Mans winner because Ferrari hasn't won Le Mans until this year it's been 50 years it was the big body cars which were the last ones to win at Le Mans so it's kind of interesting all this development still ongoing with Ferrari you know all their trials and failures along the way and we'll get more into the hundredth year as we go along Obviously, the first Le Mans you went to in the 70s left a lasting impression. You went there with a Porsche team, a family team. Porsche and VW, as you said, has been in the blood for a long time. You find yourself on a personal level still entrenched in the Porsche world. And you've remained a Porsche guy for your life. And you shared with me some of your early cars, 911 SC, 930, 911 Turbo. Have you kind of ventured away from that? Or has it always been just Porsche, Porsche, Porsche? I've had Corvettes too. I, you know, I've enjoyed Corvettes as well. But my first car was a 914, which I still have today. And that's my race car that you see. I've had it since I was 16 years old. The 914, it's a six? Yeah, it's a six. It's a three-two short stroke that I built. Let's hear about this. <laughs> you know, it wasn't a six when I bought it. It had a Volkswagen engine. I souped that up as much as I could, basically, it was a two-liter. But eventually, throughout the years, I, you know, I, I got an SE engine, took it apart, and then started putting it together. Gone through so many generations over 40 years, probably. <laughs> you know, I started doing autocross with it, then eventually, you know, racing SCCA and Porsche Club and stuff like that. And by now, it's almost like a Le Mans prototype because I have a swan neck wing in the back. I got almost ground effects in the bottom. I mean, I, it has no windshield. It has, you know, low drag. 
I got the whole cockpit enclosure that I built a, a cover for. So it's just my helmet in the wind. I've gone really radical with it. So, you know, the sail panels, fiberglass, everything in the car is fiberglass except for the, you know, the basic structure. The front's tube frame and the back is almost tube frame too. So it's a sheeps and wolf clothing. And I love that. I love the underdog, you know, like we were underdogs, you know, as a poor team coming up. You know, compared to factory teams at Le Mans and throughout racing in life, period. Are you in E prepared with that car or one of the other classes? GT2. Okay, GT2. Yeah. 1,900 pounds at about 350 horses, 50 PMO Webers. I mean, it's got everything in there. Billet heads from CMW. I mean, the works. All the uh, Wevo stuff for the gearbox, even interchangeable first gear, 993 big red brakes, you know, you name it. That, the car has everything. We're going to be able to put some pictures up with this. Oh, yeah, I have a Rubens already sent them. Yep. Yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah. It sounds amazing. Coming up through 911s and owning several 911s, why did you settle on a 914? Because it was my first car, but I've had a whole bunch of 911 race cars as well. I had a cup car, 986 cup car that I drove for a while. I had a, uh, a 934 Type RSR that I built as well that I enjoyed. Yeah, but the 914 is still around. That says something. Yeah, yeah, because it was the first and, you, you, you know, it's like you keep that. But, you know, the 914, that mid-engine compared to the Porsche, you know, I, you know, and when I take it racing now with some newer cars and 983s that are out there, 986s, and, you know, and they get blown by by the 914, they're like, wow, well, you know, horsepower to weight ratio, mid-engine, so you could come in, you know, earlier, and, you know, more hotter on the apex, brake later, slide it through with the mid-engine, you get better stability. So those things add up to lap time. Some of these guys that have the big wallets, they get blown away from this car that's 40 years old that I built. I love it for that reason. I don't get rid of it. Everybody in AR and WRL are moving towards Caymans. And, you know, there's some brilliant cars. It's the same idea as the 914, but Mm -hmm. they're just spending $200,000 to do what you're doing with a lot of development over the years. Mm -hmm. I would love to see you show up and blow them away. It would be so much fun. Oh, I usually do when they're in a, in a race with you know they're with their uh 918 spiders or gt4 came in that i come with this you know <laughs> 1974 914 but you know they're a thousand pounds heavier in most cases yep and i'm at 1900 pounds so you know weight and mass it's just physics and engineering it's, it's quite simple and i think it's a lot of fun too because as you know i'm a 914 guy and actually one of the Le Mans legends who we hope to have on the show here in the near future margie smith haas is also a 914 gal so we bonded over that when we were at the hundredth, which was a lot of fun. And it's such an interesting community of folks. And that's why I always ask, it's like, what's your 914 story? You know, it's always kind of fun. Yeah. I like 914s when I was a kid and I'm at Al Holbert's house and he's giving me a whole bunch of posters. And one of them is a 914. And I'm like, that one is going to take a place of prominence. I don't know why I liked it so much because I had never driven at that point. I'm probably 11 years old. He handed it to me and I put it right up on my wall. And talking about Le Mans, I think it was 1970 where the 914 six gts came in behind the 917 to take a podium for those of us in the 914 community we hang our hats on that it's like david and goliath correct right and it's like that's super awesome to see that underdog of a car not porsche's flagship right behind what would be considered an lmp car today it was pretty cool even brumos they have the orange 914 they still have you know with the richie ginther without the windshield when you remove the windshield that car changes
changes completely. You know, it's such a, a low drag car yep. in the mid-engine. Absolutely. You know, Porsche had to go back to mid-engine with the uh, another 990, whatever the number we're at by now. I, I lose track of the current ones, but it's a mid-engine car because, you know, it got to a point that you cannot do any more development. And it's kind of funny you mentioned those early teams campaigning 914s. A lesser known trivia question, but the first Jägermeister liveried car was a 914.6. Right, right. And they've had hundreds of cars since then, but it's kind of funny that all roads start there. And yeah, and you had the, the Kenwood car as well, that black Kenwood car. It was, it's been yeah. a couple of them here and there. Of course, you know, the other Porsche 911 have been more predominant, but there's some big success with the 914. You know, a lot of people take them for granted. What's also great about this is you have made motorsport part of your life. And not only on the professional stage, being at Le Mans, being part of Momo, being part of these teams, but being back at home in Florida, you have some great racetracks in your backyard. Obviously, you have the Daytona Rolex, you've got Sebring, you've got the Firm, you've got other stuff. You found yourself in SCCA and NASA, as you mentioned before. Having made motorsport part of your life, I want to ask you a pointed question for our younger petrol heads that are listening to this. Why should you get involved in amateur racing? I'm going to take this from Ben Keating, and I think he's had interviews about this. It's the only place where an amateur could come in and play in the Super Bowl. Because Ben is an amateur. He's a car dealer. He just won Le Mans. He's won it twice now, back to back. Grassroots Motorsports, I've raced with a lot of people. Pompco, they raced in Specniata with me. There's a lot of people that have made some improvements and, and moved up into some professional cars now. So there's opportunity. And you have to start somewhere. You know, unless, you know, your name is Stroll or Andretti, that you have money or a name it's very difficult. So you kind of have to pay your dues from the bottom up. And, you know, at least either you start with carding. When you're 10 or yeah, 8. Yeah, or 4, if you, right. if you really <laughs> yeah. wanted to build your racecraft. But, you know, you could start in a spec Miata. One of our members is a female from Texas, and she's trying to make it in the world. And she's doing spec Miata. She's trying to get to the, the global Miata Cup. Those are still somewhat affordable, that level. Because beyond that, it really jumps up. But it's an opportunity where maybe you get spotted if you have something and you're at the right age or even the right look. And that's why I think without the grassroots, there might never be the pros because, you know, where do you come from? You've spent a lot of time at a bunch of different tracks. What are your favorites? What do you hate? If you hate any. Homestead, my home track. You like it? (laughs) I hate it because it's boring. Okay. There's nothing there. <laughs> I've been in a lot of tracks all over the world. Spa, Monza, I love. Road America in the U.S., I love. I love Road Atlanta. I love tracks. They have natural terrain, blind corners, coming off a hill. You've run at Mid-Ohio, obviously. Yes, yes. Another great track. Same idea, yeah. Yeah. I was at Road America for the first time last year, and I was driving the pace car, Corvette C3. It was so much fun to be able to take it around easy and then just nail it, bringing the pack around. Didn't have to worry about whatever that Canada corner or whatever it's called, like where people crash because the walls are so close. It's like turn nine at the Glen. The runoff is about three inches. Turn 11, you want to put your mirror on the concrete. It's a lovely track, but you're at risk all the time. Road Atlanta, turn 12, coming down off the hill between the the 910 complex and looking at that wall in front of you is just terrifying and fun <laughs> but you do like homestead it's kind of boring you know daytona's it's daytona and in the banking and so forth but again it's just a couple straights a horseshoe you know you know i like vir that barber i, I really like lots of corners of blind corners the off camber because that's where you really excel and, and grow you know anybody can drive a car 
straight, but straight lines are fast cars, but fast corners are for, you know, fast drivers. So I always want to improve my skills. So the more challenging, the more corners, the more blind, the better. That kind of gets my juices going. So have you had any chance to get around Le Mans? No. No. Oh, that's got to kill you. And my friend that I know doesn't go over there, doesn't take his cars there. That's one of the reasons when ACO called, you know, about starting a focus group or whatever. I jumped on board doing the communication because they go, well, if I can make that connection with someone that I've been trying to make that connection my whole life, you know, with Momo or you name it, try to get on that track one day on a, in a car, whether on the classic, probably most likely. Have you been to the ring? Yes. In fact, when I went before the pandemic, so maybe 17 or so is, is when when I went, I rented a GT3 from a facility that's there. I think it was 300 and something a lap with the car, <laughs> but it's fine. I did three laps. I figured I'd blow a grand. The first lap out, the uh, Nurburgring Queen was- Sabine, yeah. She was going out in a, in a Beamer with some people. So I said, I'm going to follow her. Oh, perfect. <laughs> so I learned as much as I could following her. I said, all right, I, I'm going to stick with her like bubble gum. So that helped a lot coming blind. I mean, I've done it in the simulator and so, so you kind of start remembering stuff, but it's never the same figuring out like on, on the hairpin and the camber and it really turns on. You don't really feel it in a simulator. You know, you, yeah, you see it, but you don't feel it with your butt. <laughs> If you were able to keep up with Sabine Schmidt, I am impressed. Well, I had a much better car, I think. <laughs> okay. The Beamer oh, she's she doing had. the van. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a cc 3 yard. She's in with a whole bunch of people in the car, you know, so I'm like, <laughs> okay, but at least I know where she's going. That's the optimum line. Then I went out. Uh, I did great. I didn't crash. On my third lap, half of it got stopped because uh, 350ZX and another car crashed. And that's a problem when you go there. You know, you never know who's driving there and they crash. That's it. That ruins your opportunity to have a good lap and fun. But at least I got one great lap, one lap behind her and half a lap before we came upon the accidents. We're all still coming off of the 100th anniversary high, if you will. So I want to get your thoughts, especially being a longtime Porsche fan. Ferrari won. We all know how it turned out. Do you want to elaborate on your feelings on that? And we had a discussion about how sometimes Le Mans does choose you, but there's also a lot of politics these days in the outcome of the race. So I want to get your thoughts, maybe your recap on the 100th. I don't have anything against Ferrari winning. I love Ferrari and Formula One. Unfortunately, they can't win. But when Schumacher was there, I loved Schumacher. And, and uh, you know, I've been to Maranello plenty of times when I worked at Momo. I would go over there all the time. Back then, we still had regular steering wheels. <laughs> no airbag at that point. So I would go to Maranello a lot in Italy, the factory for Momo was very close by. I had access, you know, back then the Formula One wasn't very secretive like it is now. I got to go to the factory several times. So I enjoyed it. So I've always, I still love Ferrari. I don't, I don't hate them. I, you know, just, I love Porsche. Just Porsche is more affordable for me. <laughs> you know, I, I would love to have a Ferrari. I would love to raise a Ferrari. It's just the uh, socioeconomic level. So I, I definitely wanted a storybook ending for Le Mans, whether naturally or can say it could always be in tribe. There's always speculation and theories behind the scenes but them coming back for the hundred after not being there for 50 years it was great you know nobody wanted Toyota to win that's for sure you're not kidding <laughs> yeah exactly so we could all go into conspiracy well you know Toyota only wins when there's Porsche Audi and everybody else is out of there that's the only time they've won I mean when have they really won against Ferrari or Porsche with the 919 or with Audi 
they have it. So I don't want to take anything away from them. But if you don't have the competition, then it paints your win a little bit. But this time, everybody had a shot, even the Cadillac. I mean, they were all there. The parody was there. And Toyota could have won it. They blew it. They ran off the track. They blamed the squirrel, though. It was the squirrel's fault. Yeah. Well, you know, so <laughs> you, you could say it was a robotic squirrel, maybe, that came on. I don't know. Again, being a Porsche fanatic, what did you think of the 963? Well, I think it's a great car. The problem is when you're using auxiliary units for the hybrid from another manufacturer, you don't have the full development and control of everything. And I think, you know, that could be the Achilles seals for a, a couple of those cars that race in IMSA because they use a Bosch hybrid unit, a Williams, uh, you know, electro unit. So you get all these units that are not 100% integrated into a car that was designed from the beginning. Those things can play. I think it'll they'll get better. You know, this is just the first year. First year is really very difficult to calculate. So I'm glad you brought that up because there's also some speculation around whether or not the 963 will be short-lived because as we know, during Le Mans week, Porsche debuted their new hypercar, which is, I don't even know what to consider it because it's sort of in line with the new Lamborghini that's coming to LMP1 and the Bugatti Bolide, which we saw live at Le Mans, which was pretty cool. And so the 9X, I believe they're calling it, sort of falls into that category. And I'm wondering, the 963 maybe has another year in it, especially if Lamborghini and Bugatti are coming to the table with these other hypercars and the hypercar class is going to grow. So do you see a shift there? How do you see the 101st Le Mans playing out? Well, I think the 101st definitely is going to be at the same type of battle because the uh, IMSA type LMDH is definitely going to be, uh, the bugs are going to be worn out of those uh, a lot better. They're going to be, you know, gone through with the fine tooth comb. They're going to be definitely more reliable, I think. So I think the 101st is going to really be uh, another, you know, right there. Even the Peugeot didn't do bad considering, and I always go for the underdog. So, you know, I also like the American, you know, uh, Glickenhaus as well. David and Goliath, you know, imagine. And it somehow Glickenhaus would win considering everything being against them. So anything is possible. Lamont chooses who it wants to yeah. win. I would like to see Penske get that center crown for everything else he's won. He's always wanted to win Le Mans and he still wants it. I would love to see him get it with Porsche because he's been a Porsche guy since the beginning with Donahue and then in the 9-17-30 and, and many other, you know, DHL later on in American Le Mans series. So who knows next year, you know, BMW might be coming. Acro talked about coming with a second car as well. It's a lot better than being blown away, you know, where cars up by 20 laps and there's no competition. So I prefer this battle back and forth for everybody. It's just more entertaining because you don't know what's going to happen. In the GT classes, the production-based cars, you know, we got some other shocking news. And you guys just had Ben Keating for one of the Legends Nights on that GM made the announcement, no more Team Corvette, no more factory-backed racing. They're moving to the privateer model, which is nothing new. Ferrari and Porsche have been doing that forever with like AF Corsa and all that kind of stuff. But what are your feelings on the future of Corvette at Le Mans? They're still going to have a Pratt & Miller team. It's just not going to be a pro team almost like a pseudo factor, like jo Joyce getting Porsche, Kramer getting Porsche support. They're going to get that from Pratt & Miller. I think TD, which is the car that Ben raced with the Aston Martin last year, and he won his first Le Mans, is taking one of those Corvettes. And they're doing that because around the world, all these manufacturers sell GT3 cars. The GTE, you know, Le Mans is a purpose-built. So it's really about cost containment to keep the field alive. And with that parity with the GT3 
FIA regulations across the world, you're definitely going to have more entrance and keep it more viable within WEC and, and other. And then, of course, you know, it merges with the IMSA as well, you know, that convergence again. That's what it's about. To wrap up this thought about the current Le Mans, somebody asked me about Garage 56 and not necessarily the Camaro, the concept of Garage 56, right? The extra garage, the experimental garage that exists there. I had to rack my brain to think about the last time we saw a Garage 56 entry. And I think it goes back to the front wheel drive Nissan or the Delta Wing and some of those other ones from five, six, seven years ago or so. The reason I bring it up is the question that was posed to me was, is there always a Garage 56 car? And can a Garage 56 car come back to Le Mans? What's the future of this GT3 Camaro, you know, NASCAR inspired that was at the 100th? For the experimental Garage 56, it's a car that either made a significant difference technology with this year with the 100 and NASCAR 75th anniversary and the convergence. That's the main reason they brought a NASCAR Gen 3, I guess, because that's the new NASCAR. That's how that came about. But normally, they're very much into sustainability and, you know, with the hybrid, the uh, the H24, it's about those kinds of milestone events or certain things like that that they have the Garage 56. I believe the quadriplegic we had at Le Mans, that was a Garage 56, again, showcasing the human spirit racing at Le Mans as a quadriplegic. You know, those special things that don't interfere with the regulations and the categories and the wins on the other everyday competitors, but something special that merits having that garage and that's why that garage 56 is there for this year was a bit of a disruptor though because their closing speeds trap speeds i mean that car outperformed i think everybody's expectations it was super fun to watch oh it was amazing it was amazing but a lot of garage 56 cars have the reputation of really never finishing the race and this is probably the first one in a very long time that not only finished but kicked butt they kicked butt in the pit stops with actual nascar jacks which was so much fun to watch when you have jim going there since he hasn't been there since 76 when i was there and rick who's super competitive and hendrick and you know and jimmy and and mike and jason they're going to make sure that that car does well well and then you've got button driving it which was yeah, so much yeah fun, you know exactly and he's hooked now so he's yeah. in california <laughs> now he's doing nascar racing you know it, it, it dusted off the rust and he's it's in this now in uh, racing here in america that's great and i think more than anybody everybody loved that 56 that v8 thundering by more people were taking photos of that the europeans the brits the, the americans probably they went crazy for the car that v8 rumble you know you haven't had that since the c5 7 b a couple of years ago that's racing when you hear that you know just flying by so uh, i'm all for stuff like that that definitely raises awareness either for sustainability for new technology human endeavor so those are great things that I think that's the reason why, the, you know, they should continue that Garage 56. I think it's always been a, a popular thing. They don't always finish, but, hey, you know, NASCAR boys want to make sure that they, oh, yeah. they finish and made a good statement. And it was well received around the globe, actually. How did you hook up with this American job with the Auto Club Dest? Well, it's not a job. I'm a volunteer. Okay. The ACO was not doing much in the United States with the convergence of regulations. I guess they saw that there was opportunity to maybe grow in the U.S. market. About a year ago, they appointed David Lowe. One of his family members runs the ACO club. He's a director in France. So he appointed David. 
last year, maybe around uh, October. And David started calling people that were members of the ACO. And I was a member of the ACO. I think there was only maybe 50 in the United States compared to 30,000 in France. So basically, we, we had nothing. And a lot of times the people would just join for the race. I just joined because I like to get the newsletter and always be active on Le Mans. And that's how it started. And then we started a, a focus group to work on, you know, what we thought would bring people into the community, what we should do. That's where I suggested, well, the race is once a year. You need to have something more than, you know, than ticket discount. And that's what we wanted to build a community. And I said, well, let's do evening with a legend. I'll get drivers and I'll, we'll start interviewing once a month. So at least regular folks can ask questions and get behind the scenes stories, and, you know, whatever you want to ask them, because you don't always have access to those people and also members meetup where members can meet up at a track. So we did the first meetup in Daytona this year, actually. <laughs> Seems like it's been more than a year already. The year's gone pretty quick. And that was a success. I got Donald Leatherwood to come from Brumos, who's a crew chief for Brumos for many years. And then the members really enjoyed that. Then one of our members stepped up in Sebring. That he's a local car dealer. He's a member of the ACO. He has like four or five rental spots there at Sebring in turn one for motorhomes. And we did this great members meet up there. Again, another success building, you know, camaraderie and, and everybody getting together, knowing who the people are. And that's how this has evolved and grown basically from October till now at right around 500 members. So it's been a pretty steep curve. At Le Mans alone, I think we signed up about 89 in one day, talked to them about what we we're doing and so forth. A lot of it is that they don't know that the ACO even has a, a members club and that Americans can join it. And that's what David and I are trying to do to get that word out to the public that's not aware of it. The biggest perk, David worked very hard for this. I know Ruben, you were involved in this as well, is getting the American audience, the American region of the ACO access to the races via live stream, which has been a challenge for all of us oh, to gosh. tune in to Le Mans every year. Because you're like, is Velocity carrying it? Is it Speed? Is it Motor Trend? Is it Peacock? Who's carrying it? And when they do carry it, it's like, here's a four hour chunk. You know, we'll wait for the next one and the next one. And, and it's a little kludgy. But to go in there and say, I've got direct access to the ACO and I can watch the live stream. And what was great is while we were at the 100th, one of our guys that brought us in, also American ACO, he was like, hey, I'm put a lot up on my phone. And even though we were at La Chapelle and the Jumbotrons were there, as we were walking around, we could still watch the race from a mobile device. That way we were seeing what was going on throughout the track, which was absolutely phenomenal. For me, that's worth it. And if it expands, as David talked about on his episode, to maybe include additional WEC races, which now you can get them in replay form, but we could live stream the rest of the series. Holy cow, that'd be awesome. That's what we're trying to do. We want to get the whole WEC so people could have the whole year. Portimao, they could have Bonsa, the Spa, Fuji. But yes, we want to keep that momentum going the whole year. It's not a just Le Mans. Yeah, you know, the ACO is our brand. But Le Mans is our race, but there is other races, eight races, you know, and we definitely want to continue that vibe moving all year long. And that's why now at Petit Le Mans, we're going to do another member meetup at Petit to get another group of people. Recently, uh, we've had a, a member that uh, from the Pilot Club join us, and we've spoken about doing regional events where we have 20, 30 members across the country. We'll have a, a small regional get-together so we, we can know who all we are, you know, and maybe we'll surprise them with, you know, a legend showing up at one of these events. So so those are the things to bring people into the community because that's what we want. We don't, we don't want the club that you could get this kind of the race. That's a benefit. It's about having a community the whole year of 
passionate people. They love Le Mans. They love endurance racing. They love IMSA as well. We welcome everybody. We don't exclude anybody. We want people that are passionate and, and just get together and, and enjoy our passion, share our, our stories as well. So Ruben, not only are you right-hand man to David, part of the board, you know, making all this stuff happen at the ACO USA, you're also in charge of social media, marketing, all that. You run the ACO USA Facebook group, which is for members only. And then you have the night with the legends. Do you want to expand upon that and explain to people like what all those different pieces are really about? The Facebook group was my idea to get to people that don't read the newsletter because a lot of times you get an email, don't open it. We get so much spam, you know, just another avenue to get the message out, you know, whatever we put in the newsletter, I'll put on, on the Facebook group, whatever comes from Le Mans as well, I'll put there so we can have a daily reminder of something. It keeps Le Mans weck in the people's mind. I'll come up with stuff, you know, that I'll pull up from all over, you know, before the hundred, there was so many events, you know, a chocolate event at Le Mans that, that did a chocolate, the track and all kinds of unique things. So I'll put that in there to bring that flavor because our vision is for the people that can never go to Le Mans. We want to bring Le Mans to them and bring it to them on a daily or weekly basis, you know, and the monthly Zoom, you know, again, access to a legend. Some of these legends, you know, their days are numbered, the ones in the seventies and so forth, you know, the, the Bells, the Redmonds and so the you know, Andretti's, I mean, they're in their eighties plus. So it's building that connection with them. They, you know, they may like me when I was there, I saw them, but I didn't get to talk to them. You know, now later on, I'm, I'm catching up, I guess, by doing this. And, and I love it, you know, chasing them down to do the Zoom and, and really get into their story, how they felt in the car, you know, good or bad. Because Le Mans, you know, you don't win Le Mans, Le Mans chooses you. So everybody's got a, a story there for sure. And, you know, and I just want to get that out to people that want to hear it from our legends. When we had David on, he talked about some of the other events you're planning, like the Blown Away, which is on the original America's Cup winning ship and some other things you guys have planned what are those events about and what else is on the radar that people should be interested in it's about building a community and getting people together the blown away one of our members owns the Gruner america the, the sales ship that the america's cup is named after and so he graciously donated the boat for the members to do a meetup so we're actually doing uh, in san diego a small group of members and about six or seven legends who will all be together for about 40 people so it's very intimate but you get to sail for two hours with the legends and then we'll have a formal dinner. Two of the possible visitors that are going to reunite after 30 years for that event is uh, Doc Bundy and Jim Bugsby. They haven't been together for 30 years. That's amazing. God willing, you know, to be in the room on the wall when, when these two legends get together after so many years, it should be a memorable event. And that's something money can't buy. You could only access that by being a member of the ACO in the U.S. So those are the things that we're planning you know, bringing people in access to some of these legends that might be heroes for them. They know all their story, but they never met in person because in a racetrack, it's probably won't ever meet them. So it has to be some of these social events, meetups. And this is what we're bringing to people, you know, whatever we can put together. And you might ask, well, what does a sailboat have to do with Lamont? It's racing. <laughs> no, no, but Briggs Cunningham in 1958 won the America's Cup. Wow. So there's the connection. I found <laughs> that connection. So see, and actually, uh, I don't know if Briggs' grandson might be coming. I'm a sailor and I'm a racer and it all touches the same part of your heart and your brain. Let's go fast. Even if there's light wind, you know, if we've got four knots of wind and we're putting the spinnaker up and we're chilling and it's a slow race, I'm like, well, we're just going to enjoy this race race but we're gonna beat the guy 
<laughs> if I'm driving 135 horsepower BMW versus a 500 horsepower Mustang or something, you know, it's, it's just all different degrees of the same thing. So see, these are the kind of things that you say, wow, you know, there is a connection. I guess racing is racing, you know, but that's where we could say, okay, there's a Lamont connection. That's good to know. I, I'll definitely be uh, getting on board. It sounds like a, a, a great group of people. Well, Ruben, we've come to that part of the episode where I get to ask any shout outs, promotions, or anything else you'd like to share that we haven't covered thus far. Being part of the ACO, I think, is the number one thing that I want to continue to shout out on. I really want people to look at our members page, see the benefits that are there. And it goes beyond the page. I mean, we could only list a couple of stuff there. It's about building connections with other members locally or racetracks across the country. You know, and sharing the stories, just like we shared tonight, my story with you and just our experiences. And I think we'd all be better off as humans by participating in events like this. And this is exactly what we want to bring out as being part of a member of the ACO. And it's not which car you drive, like some of the car clubs, that if you don't have the car, you can't join. You know, we want people that are passionate about racing, whether it's Le Mans, IMSA. We just want to get together, share stories, bring access to people, legends that you'll never get otherwise on dress. Redman, you know, Bugsby, whoever they are. And those are the kinds of things that I want to get out and through this podcast and some of the other avenues that we're trying. We peeled back the many layers of Ruben's racing history, delving into the trials and triumphs of unsung heroes. From the dusty back roads of their humble beginnings to the international racing circuits, many of us can identify with Ruben's journey. The dreams, resilience, and the unbreakable spirit that fuels our pursuits in motorsports. To learn more about Ruben or to chat about the ACO USA, reach out to him via email at r.sanchez at aco-lamans.org. If you'd like to become a member of the ACO, look no further than www.lamans.org. Click on English in the upper right corner and then click on the link on the ACO members tab for the club offers. As a member, you can follow all the action on the Facebook group, ACO USA Members Club. And with that, Ruben, can't thank you enough for coming on BreakFix and sharing your story. It's an inspiration to all of us to start in motorsport at such a young age and continue this journey for a lifespan. A lot of people get into motorsport for a couple of years and get out. You know, we say that it's a sport of convenience and not of loyalty, but you're the example that we look up to of a loyal, diehard motorsport enthusiast. Thank you for giving back and being part of the ACO and making this something for everybody that we can all share in. Well, thank you for having me. Yes, it's a lifelong passion and we speak to my family members they know that i want to remade it and be put on the musang you know i started at six with mcqueen and i want to end there whenever that day comes hopefully many years from now that's my passion i share that exact dream i get that yeah <laughs> real pleasure to meet you ruben are you tired of just sitting in the pits explore the many advantages of becoming an aco member today ACO membership benefits exclusive to the United States include live streaming of the 24 hours of Le Mans, free practices one, two, three, and four, qualifying, hyperpole, morning warm up, and the race. You can get your member name on the fan wall at the famous Le Mans circuit, invitations to an evening with a legend series, presentations that are exclusive to USA members where a legend of the famous 24 hours will share stories and highlights of the big event, regular interactive video conferences featuring technical experts and racing personalities, as well as ACO 
USA member merchandise. But most of all, as a member of the Automobile Club of the West in the United States, you will be part of a community of fans that share your passion for the excitement of the 24 Hours of Le Mans and endurance racing around the world. If you'd like to become a member of the ACO, look no further than www.lemans.org. Click on English in the upper right corner and then click on the ACO Members tab for club offers. If you like what you've heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out on www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Touring Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, everybody. Crew Chief Eric here. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of Break Fix, and we wanted to remind you that GTM remains a no annual fees organization, and our goal is to continue to bring you quality episodes like this one at no charge. As a loyal listener, please consider subscribing to our Patreon for bonus and behind-the-scenes content, extra goodies, and GTM swag. For as little as $2.50 a month, you can keep our developers, writers, editors, casters, and other volunteers fed on their strict diet of Fig Newtons, Gummy Bears, and Monster. Consider signing up for Patreon today at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. And remember, without fans, supporters, and members like you, none of this would be possible.